Chapter thirty eight of Pushing to the Front by Horizon Sweat Martin. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Luke Sartor. Chapter thirty eight The Will and the Way. I will find a way or make one. Nothing is impossible to the man who can will. Mirabeau. The iron will of one stout heart shall make a thousand quail. A feeble dwarf, dauntlessly resolved, will turn the tide of battle, and rally to a nobler strife the giants that had fled. Tupper. In the lexicon of youth, which fate reserves for a bright manhood, there is no such word as fail. Bulwer. When a firm and decisive spirit is recognized, it is curious to see how the space clears around a man and leaves him room and freedom. John Foster As well can the Prince of Orange pluck the stars from the sky, as bring the ocean to the wall of Leyden for your relief, was the derisive shout of the Spanish soldiers when told that the Dutch fleet would raise that terrible four-month siege of 1574. But from the parched lips of William, tossing on his bed of fever at Rotterdam, had issued the command, Break down the dikes! Give Holland back to ocean! And the people had replied, Better a drowned land than a lost land. They began to demolish dike after dike of the strong lines, ranged one within another for fifteen miles to their city of the interior. It was an enormous task. The garrison was starving, and the besiegers laughed in scorn at the slow progress of the puny insects who sought to rule the waves of the sea. But ever, as of old, heaven aids those who help themselves. On the first and second of October, a violent quinoctial gale rolled the ocean inland, and swept the fleet on the rising waters almost to the camp of the Spaniards. The next morning the garrison sailed out to attack their enemies, but the besiegers had fled in terror under cover of the darkness. The next day the wind changed, and a counter-tempest brushed the water, with the fleet upon it, from the surface of Holland. The outer dikes were replaced at once, leaving the North Sea within its old bounds. When the flowers bloomed the following spring, a joyous procession marched through the streets to found the University of Leyden in commemoration of the wonderful deliverance of the city. At a dinner party given in 1837 at the residence of Chancellor Kent in New York City, some of the most distinguished men in the country were invited and among them was a young and rather melancholy and reticent Frenchman. Professor Morse was also one of the guests, and during the evening he drew the attention of Mr. Gallatin, then a prominent statesman, to the stranger, observing that his forehead indicated a great intellect. Yes, replied Mr. Gallatin, touching his own forehead with his finger. There is a great deal in that head of his, but he has a strange fancy. Can you believe it? He has the idea that he will one day be the Emperor of France. Can you conceive anything more absurd than that? 
It did seem absurd, for this reserved Frenchman was then a poor adventurer, an exile from his country, without fortune or powerful connections. And yet, fourteen years later, his idea became a fact. His dream of becoming Napoleon III was realized. True, before he accomplished his purpose, there were long, dreary years of imprisonment, exile, disaster, and patient labor and hope. But he gained his ambition at last. He was not scrupulous as to the means employed to accomplish his ends, and yet he is a remarkable example of what pluck and energy can do. When Mr. Ingram, publisher of the Illustrated London News, began life as a newsdealer at Nottingham, England, he walked ten miles to deliver a single paper rather than disappoint a customer. Does anyone wonder that such a youth succeeded? Once he rose at two o'clock in the morning and walked to London to get some papers because there was no post to bring them. He determined that his customers should not be disappointed. This is the kind of will that finds a way. There is scarcely anything in all biography grander than the saying of young Henry Fawcett, Gladstone's last postmaster general, to his grief-stricken father, who had put out both his eyes by birdshot during a game hunt. Never mind, father, blindness shall not interfere with my success in life. One of the most pathetic sights in London streets, long afterward, was Henry Fawcett, M.P., led everywhere by a faithful daughter, who acted as amanuensis as well as guide to her plucky father. Think of a young man, scarcely on the threshold of active life, suddenly losing the sight of both eyes, and yet, by mere pluck and almost incomprehensible tenacity of purpose, lifting himself into eminence in any direction, to say nothing of becoming one of the foremost men in a country noted for its great men. The courageous daughter who was eyes to her father was a marvellous example of pluck and determination. For the first time in the history of Oxford College, which reaches back centuries, she succeeded in winning the post which had only been gained before by great men, such as Gladstone, the post of senior wrangler. This achievement had had no parallel in history up to that date, and attracted the attention of the whole civilized world. Not only had no woman ever held this position before, but with few exceptions, it had only been held by men who in afterlife became highly distinguished. Circumstances, says Milton, have rarely favored famous men. They have fought their way to triumph through all sorts of opposing obstacles. The true way to conquer circumstances is to be a greater circumstance yourself. Yet, while desiring to impress in the most forcible manner possible the fact that willpower is necessary to success, and that, other things being equal, the greater the willpower, the grander and more complete the success, we cannot endorse the theory that there is nothing in circumstances or environments, or that any man, simply because he has an indomitable will, may become a Bonaparte, a Pitt, 
a Webster, a Beecher, a Lincoln. We must temper determination with discretion, and support it with knowledge and common sense, or it will only lead us to run our heads against posts. We must not expect to overcome a stubborn fact merely by a stubborn will. We only have the right to assume that we can do anything within the limit of our utmost faculty, strength, and endurance. Obstacles permanently insurmountable bar our progress in some directions, but in any direction we may reasonably hope and attempt to go, we shall find that, as a rule, they are either not insurmountable or else not permanent. The strong-willed, intelligent, persistent man will find or make a way where, in the nature of things, a way cannot be found or made. Every schoolboy knows that circumstances do give clients to lawyers and patients to physicians, place ordinary clergymen in extraordinary pulpits, place sons of the rich at the head of immense corporations and large houses, when they have very ordinary ability and scarcely any experience, while poor young men with unusual ability, good education, good character, and large experience often have to fight their way for years to obtain even very mediocre situations. That there are thousands of young men of superior ability, both in the city and in the country, who seem to be compelled by circumstances to remain in very ordinary positions for small pay, when others about them are raised by money or family influence into desirable places. In other words, we all know that the best men do not always get the best places. Circumstances do have a great deal to do with our position, our salaries, our station in life. Everyone knows there is not always a way where there is a will, that labor does not always conquer all things, that there are things impossible even to him that wills, however strongly, that one cannot always make anything of himself he chooses, that there are limitations in our very natures which no amount of willpower or industry can overcome. But while it is true that the willpower cannot perform miracles, yet that it is almost omnipotent and can perform wonders, all history goes to prove. As Shakespeare says, Men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. Show me a man who, according to popular prejudice, is a victim of bad luck, and I will show you one who has some unfortunate crooked twist of temperament that invites disaster. He is ill-tempered, conceited, or trifling, lacks character, enthusiasm, or some other requisite for success. Disraeli said that man is not the creature of circumstances, but that circumstances are the creatures of men. Believe in the power of will which annihilates the sickly sentimental doctrine of fatalism. You must, but can't. You ought, but it is impossible. Give me the man who faces what he must, who breaks his birth's invidious bar, and grasps the skirts of happy chance, and breasts the blows of circumstance, and grapples with his evil star. The indomitable will, 
the inflexible purpose will find a way or make one. There is always room for a man of force. He who has a firm will, says Goethe, molds the world to himself. People do not lack strength, says Victor Hugo. They lack will. He who resolves upon any great end by that very resolution has scaled the great barriers to it. And he who seizes the grand idea of self-cultivation and solemnly resolves upon it will find that idea, that resolution, burning like fire within him and ever putting him upon his own improvement. He will find it removing difficulties, searching out or making means, giving courage for despondency and strength for weakness. Nearly all great men, those who have towered high above their fellows, have been remarkable above all things else for their energy of will. Of Julius Caesar it was said by a contemporary that it was his activity and giant determination, rather than his military skill, that won his victories. The youth who starts out in life determined to make the most of his eyes and let nothing escape him, which he can possibly use for his own advancement, who keeps his ears open for every sound that can help him on his way, who keeps his hands open that he may clutch every opportunity, who is ever on the alert for everything which can help him to get on in the world, who seizes every experience in life and grinds it up into paint for his great life's picture, who keeps his heart open that he may catch every noble impulse and everything which may inspire him, that youth will be sure to make his life successful. There are no ifs or ands about it. If he has his health, nothing can keep him from final success. No tyranny of circumstances can permanently imprison a determined will. The world always stands aside for the determined man. The general of a large army may be defeated, says Confucius, but you cannot defeat the determined mind of a peasant. The poor deaf pauper, Kitto, who made shoes in the almshouse, and who became the greatest of biblical scholars, wrote in his journal on the threshold of manhood. I am not myself a believer in impossibilities. I think that all the fine stories about natural ability, etc., are mere rigmarole, and that every man may, according to his opportunities and industry, render himself almost anything he wishes to become. Lincoln is probably the most remarkable example on the pages of history, showing the possibilities of our country. From the poverty in which he was born, through the rowdyism of a frontier town, the discouragement of early bankruptcy, and the fluctuations of popular politics, he rose to the championship of union and freedom. Lincoln's will made his way. When his friends nominated him as a candidate for the legislature, his enemies made fun of him. When making his campaign speeches, he wore a mixed-jean coat so short that he could not sit down on it, flax and towel linen trousers, straw hat 
and pot-metal boots. He had nothing in the world but character and friends. When his friends suggested law to him, he laughed at the idea of his being a lawyer. He said he had not brains enough. He read law barefoot under the trees, his neighbors said, and he sometimes slept on the counter in the store where he worked. He had to borrow money to buy a suit of clothes to make a respectable appearance in the legislature, and walked to take his seat at Vandalia, one hundred miles. See Thurwo Weed, defying poverty and wading through the snow two miles with rags for shoes, to borrow a book to read before the sap bushfire. See Locke, living on bread and water in a Dutch garret. See Hayne, sleeping many a night on a barn floor with only a book for his pillow. See Samuel Drew, tightening his apron string in lieu of a dinner. History is full of such examples. He who will pay the price for victory need never fear final defeat. Paris was in the hands of a mob. The authorities were panic-stricken, for they did not dare to trust their underlings. In came a man who said, I know a young officer who has the courage and ability to quell this mob. Send for him, send for him, send for him, said they. Napoleon was sent for came, subjugated the mob, subjugated the authorities, ruled France, and then conquered Europe. Success in life is dependent largely upon the willpower, and whatever weakens or impairs it diminishes success. The will can be educated. That which most easily becomes a habit in us is the will. Learn, then, to will decisively and strongly, Thus fix your floating life, and leave it no longer to be carried hither and thither like a withered leaf by every wind that blows. It is not talent that men lack. It is the will to labor. It is the purpose. It was the insatiable thirst for knowledge which held to his task through poverty and discouragement. John Layden a Scotch shepherd's son. Barefoot and alone, he walked six or eight miles daily to learn to read, which was all the schooling he had. His desire for an education defied the extremest poverty, and no obstacle could turn him from his purpose. He was rich when he discovered a little bookstore, and his thirsty soul would drink in the precious treasures from its priceless volumes for hours, perfectly oblivious of the scanty meal of bread and water which awaited him at his lowly lodging. Nothing could discourage him from trying to improve himself by study. It seemed to him that an opportunity to get at books and lectures was all that any man could need. Before he was nineteen, this poor shepherd boy with no chance had astonished the professors of Edinburgh by his knowledge of Greek and Latin. Hearing that a surgeon's assistant in the civil service was wanted, although he knew nothing, whatever, of medicine, he determined to apply for it. There were only six months before the place was to be filled, but nothing would daunt him, and he took his degree with honor. 
Walter Scott, who thought this one of the most remarkable illustrations of perseverance, helped to fit him out, and he sailed for India. Webster was very poor even after he entered Dartmouth College. A friend sent him a recipe for greasing his boots. Webster wrote and thanked him, and added, But my boots needs other doctoring, for they not only admit water, but even peas and gravel stones. Yet he became one of the greatest men in the world. Sidney Smith said, Webster was a living lie, because no man on earth could be as great as he looked. Carlyle said of him, one would incline at sight to back him against the world. What seemed to be luck followed Stephen Gerard all his life. No matter what he did, it always seemed to others to turn to his account, being a foreigner, unable to speak English, short, stout, and with a repulsive face, blind in one eye. It was hard for him to get a start, but he was not the man to give up. He had begun as a cabin boy at thirteen, and for nine years sailed between Bordeaux and the French West Indies. He improved every leisure minute at sea, mastering the art of navigation. At the age of eight he had first discovered that he was blind in one eye. His father, evidently, thinking that he would never amount to anything, would not help him to an education beyond that of mere reading and writing, but sent his younger brothers to college. The discovery of his blindness, the neglect of his father, and the chagrin of his brother's advancement soured his whole life. When he began business for himself in Philadelphia, there seemed to be nothing he would not do for money. He bought and sold anything from groceries to old junk. He bottled wine and cider, from which he made a good profit. Everything he touched prospered. He left nothing to chance. His plans and schemes were worked out with mathematical care. His letters written to his captains in foreign ports, laying out their routes and giving detailed instructions, are models of foresight and systematic planning. He never left anything of importance to others. He was rigidly accurate in his instructions, and would not allow the slightest departure from them. He used to say that while his captains might save him money by deviating from instructions once, yet they would cause loss in ninety-nine other cases. He never lost a ship, and many times that which brought financial ruin to many others as the War of 1812, only increased his wealth. Everybody, especially his jealous brother merchants, attributed his great success to his luck, while undoubtedly he was fortunate in happening to be at the right place at the right time. Yet he was precision, method, accuracy, energy itself. What seemed luck with him was only good judgment and promptness in seizing opportunities, and the greatest care and zeal in improving them to their utmost possibilities. The mathematician tells you that if you throw the dice, there are thirty chances to one against your turning up P-1. 
particular number, and a hundred to one against your repeating the same throw three times in succession, and so on in an augmenting ratio. Many a young man who has read the story of John Wanamaker's romantic career has gained very little inspiration or help from it toward his own elevation and advancement, for he looks upon it as the result of good luck, chance, or fate. What a lucky fellow, he says to himself as he reads. What a bonanza he fell into. But a careful analysis of Wanamaker's life only enforces the same lesson taught by the analysis of most great lives, namely, that a good mother, a good constitution, the habit of hard work, indomitable energy, determination which knows no defeat, decision which never wavers, concentration which never scatters its forces, courage which never falters, self-mastery which can say no and stick to it, strict integrity and downright honesty, a cheerful disposition, unbounded enthusiasm in one's calling, and a high aim and noble purpose, ensure a very large measure of success. Youth should be taught that there is something in circumstances, that there is such a thing as a poor pedestrian happening to find no obstruction in his way, and reaching the goal when a better walker finds the drawbridge up, the street blockaded, and so fails to win the race. That wealth often does place unworthy sons in high positions. That family influence does gain a lawyer clients, a physician patients, an ordinary scholar a good professorship. But that, on the other hand, position, clients, patients, professorships, managers, and superintendents' positions do not necessarily constitute success. He should be taught that in the long run, as a rule, the best man does win the best place, and that persistent merit does succeed. There is about as much chance of idleness and incapacity winning real success or a high position in life as there would be in producing a paradise lost by shaking up promiscuously the separate words of Webster's Dictionary and letting them fall at random on the floor. Fortune smiles upon those who roll up their sleeves and put their shoulders to the wheel, upon men who are not afraid of dreary, dry, irksome drudgery, men of nerve and grit, who do not turn aside for dirt and detail. The youth should be taught that he alone is great, who, by a life heroic, conquers fate, that diligence is the mother of good luck, that nine times out of ten what we call luck or fate is but a mere bugbear of the indolent, the languid, the purposeless, the careless, the indifferent, that, as a rule, the man who fails does not see or seize his opportunity. Opportunity is coy, is swift, is gone, before the slow, the unobservant, the indolent, or the careless can seize her. 
In idle wishes fools supinely stay, So there a will and wisdom finds a way. It has been well said that the very reputation of being strong-willed, plucky, and indefatigable is of priceless value. It often cows enemies and dispels at the start opposition to one's undertakings, which would otherwise be formidable. It is astonishing what men who have come to their senses late in life have accomplished by a sudden resolution. Arkwright was fifty years of age when he began to learn English grammar and improve his writing and spelling. Benjamin Franklin was past fifty before he began the study of science and philosophy. Milton, in his blindness, was past the age of fifty when he sat down to complete his world-known epic, and Scott, at fifty-five, took up his pen to redeem a liability of six hundred thousand dollars. Yet I am learning, said Michelangelo, when threescore years and ten were past, and he had long attained the highest triumphs of his art. Even brains are second in importance to will. The vacillating man is always pushed aside in the race of life. It is only the weak and vacillating who halt before adverse circumstances and obstacles. A man with an iron will, with a determination that nothing shall check his career, is sure if he has perseverance and grit to succeed. We may not find time for what we would like, but what we long for and strive for with all our strength, we usually approximate, if we do not fully reach. I wish it were possible to show the youth of America the great part that the will might play in their success in life, and in their happiness as well. The achievements of willpower are simply beyond computation. Scarcely anything in reason seems impossible to the man who can will strong enough and long enough. How often we see this illustrated in the case of a young woman who suddenly becomes conscious that she is plain and unattractive, who by prodigious exercise of her will and untiring industry resolves to redeem herself from obscurity and commonness, and who not only makes up for her deficiencies, but elevates herself into a prominence and importance which mere personal attractions could never have given her. Charlotte Cushman, without a charm of form or face, climbed to the very top of her profession. How many young men, stung by consciousness of physical deformity or mental deficiencies, have, by a strong, persistent exercise of willpower, raised themselves from mediocrity and placed themselves high above those who scorned them? History is full of examples of men and women who have redeemed themselves from disgrace, poverty, and misfortune by the firm resolution of an iron will, the consciousness of being looked upon as inferior, as incapable of accomplishing what others accomplish. The sensitiveness at being considered a dunce in school has stung many a youth into a determination which has elevated him far above those who laughed at him, as in the case of Newton, of Adam Clark, of Sheridan, Wellington, Goldsmith, Dr. Chalmers, 
Curran, Disraeli, and hundreds of others. It is men like Mirabeau who trample upon impossibilities, like Napoleon, who do not wait for opportunities, but make them, like Grant, who has only unconditional surrender for the enemy, who change the very front of the world. I can't, it is impossible, said a foiled lieutenant to Alexander. Be gone, shouted the conquering Macedonian. There is nothing impossible to him who will try. Were I called upon to express in a word the secret of so many failures among those who started out in life with high hopes, I should say unhesitatingly they lacked willpower. They could not half will. What is a man without a will? He is like an engine without steam, a mere sport of chance, to be tossed about hither and thither, always at the mercy of those who have wills. I should call the strength of will the test of a young man's possibilities. Can he will strong enough and hold whatever he undertakes with an iron grip? It is the iron grip that takes the strong hold on life. The truest wisdom, said Napoleon, is a resolute determination. An iron will without principle might produce a Napoleon, but with character it would make a Wellington or a Grant, untarnished by ambition or avarice. The undivided will, tis that compels the elements and rings a human music from the indifferent air. End of chapter 38 The Will and the Way Recording by Luke Sartor Brisbane, Queensland